0: I'm Mel Kettle and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Welcome back to This Connected Life. I'm your host, Mel Kettle, and my guest today is... (laughs) Is John Carl. John is a barrister from Brisbane. He works primarily in the areas of criminal law, family law, and regulatory law. And I'm trying not to laugh because before I hit record, we were just having a a funny conversation (laughs) and i'm sure there'll be plenty of laughs throughout this john and i met when we were both on abc brisbane with the fabulous kelly higgins divine early in the year or might have even been last year where we laughed our way through a one-hour segment with her so thank you john for your time today i really am looking forward to talking to you and introducing you to our listeners
1: Thanks, Mel, and thanks for having me on this Friday afternoon. It's lovely. Absolute
0: <clears> pleasure. <throat> I should say this is about our fifth time of attempting to get this podcast. Yeah, recorded. I know. So oh, I think I've cancelled at least half of them. You've cancelled one or two of them. Or, I've got, or I've got
1: the total miscommunications. Wrong, been, <laughs> know, we've both had the COVID 19s of technology. I think.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So, my first question that I love to ask guests is what does connection mean to you? authenticity
1: I suppose yes that the person is speaking the truth that they're being authentic that I'm not getting something that's fake I guess it's a genuine honesty in the way that you communicate and I think that enables you to send the message through that you will connect with I think that goes for I think it goes for anything
0: yeah authenticity is a big thing for me as well But you're a barrister, so Mm. how do you show your authentic self in front of a judge? But something I'm also interested in is how can you tell when your clients are being authentic?
1: That's a tricky one.
0: Mm.
1: Lawyers are trained to doubt everything. That's our job. We're paid to worry. We're paid to think the worst. So it's like you've got an alternative story that's playing at the time that your client is telling a certain story because you've got to do that because if you're running a trial you've got to find the inconsistencies in your opponent's case and also to assess the veracity of your client's evidence in your client's case you are looking for inconsistencies all the time. So how do I put this? I suppose I assess client's genuineness by the evidence that they give me so I I look for I look for the inconsistencies but look I suppose what I have to make clear there is as a barrister as a lawyer you're acting under instruction from your client so they're telling you their story their case and your job is to build a case around that and it's not really the question of authenticity or whether they're telling the truth It's what their argument is or what their case is or what instructions they provide to you as to what their case is. Apologies, it's Friday afternoon. I'm using too many words. And it's your job to build a case around that, to try and... So, for instance, if you're defending somebody in a criminal trial, is to throw enough doubt against the prosecution's case that prevents the prosecution from proving their case. And their job is to prove their case beyond reasonable doubt. And my job on behalf of my client, is to defend him on his or her instructions and then from that, and often in criminal trials, you don't call your own client, you don't call your client to give evidence because it's the prosecution's role to uh, prove their case beyond reasonable doubt. But some trials had a large trial last year where the defendant did give evidence and he was wonderful. He was one of the best witnesses I've ever had because... um, (laughs) He was telling the truth. I certainly believe he was telling the truth. <laughs> he did come across as authentic. And in front of a jury, you know, they're like, a jury's just, it's just a small theatre. It's like in a performance, people can smell blood when things aren't going right or if they're not convinced of a certain performance. A jury is the same. Oh. And oh. certainly when this fellow gave evidence there'd been a lot of preceding evidence from the complainant in the matter that assisted him in in the sense that there were lots of inconsistencies from that complainant but with this particular witness he was very authentic he just came across really 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 well and I rarely turn my mind to whether I believe my client or not and actually most of the time I don't it's the way that you can construct a case best defends their position or prosecutes their position whichever side of the litigation that you're representing them in but every so often the mind is a curious mind you can't help but go "Mm," internally where they're at and how do I assess that well it's usually through physicality eye connection and a gut feeling Mm. generally that's basically
0: do you always act for the defendant
1: no I do both sides do you have a preference No, I've probably done in in criminal trials. Recently, I've done more prosecution than I've done Mm. defence. There's certainly more pressure. Uh, It's just different. There's certainly a heavy burden on, you know, if there's a trial where the person, and usually with these jury trials, the person is looking at some kind of custodial sentence you always have to take it seriously, but that's a heavy burden to carry. Whereas when you're acting for the prosecution, but you've got a different burden Then you're acting on behalf of the crown, but obviously there is a complainant. There's a victim of the crime and that that's a heavy burden to carry as well. Look, some people prefer defense, but look, I'm one of these barristers who I enjoy doing a bit of everything. So I do crime, I do family. I also do administrative law and regulatory law. So I like having variety, I suppose. So I'm not good at picking favourites, I suppose.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> or making up my mind, maybe that's it.
0: <laughs> maybe that's it.
1: Probably, how did, yeah. How
0: did you get into law? Did you always want to be a lawyer from when you were a child? or?
1: Oh, no, right no, no, no. I got into law originally. Well, I actually got into the Conservatorium of Music for voice. was my first step on the university trail, And I only lasted... I always say three months, but it was actually only about three weeks, actually. (laughs) I dropped out because it was straight into the operatic program. It was very intensive and it was, you know, I'd just gotten out of school and I just wanted to have a good time with my mates and Mm. I didn't want to be locked up in opera school all the time, which showed how seriously I took things back then, not, and... I just wanted to take a year off and go travelling and I don't know what on because I had no money. But anyway, <laughs> my parents soon said, no, you go and study or you get a job. And I'd left it too late to transfer to another university. There must have, the period in which you could do that must have expired. So I could only transfer within the university. The Conservatory of Music was with uh, Griffith University. So I went and did film studies for a year, which I still think is the most enjoyment I've ever had out of a degree. I really enjoyed doing... I just watched movies for a year, Mm. which I loved, and wrote commentary pieces on them. Then I transferred to QUT and did journalism. and, And then I got to the third year of journalism and went... I just didn't want to leave uni. And a friend of mine who I'm still very close to Mentioned, which she, which she and I were doing journalism together, and that she was thinking of, um, she was going to think of going on to do a law degree, and she was going to talk to the dean of law that afternoon because we had to have special permission, which is hilarious because now people do these combinations all the time, but back then you just did law or you just did a journalism degree. So I just went along with her, and next minute I was enrolled in a journalism and law degree. And then, yeah, that took another three years. I was at uni for six years. I never wanted to leave. And Being, then,
0: being a uni student's a pretty good life. Oh, Especially when you've just left school and oh. you don't have responsibilities. Oh,
1: it was the best years yeah. of my life. I enjoyed it immensely. And then I did want to work as a journalist, but could never get... I got shortlisted for a lot of things, got shortlisted at the ABC, shortlisted at the Curry Mail, but I'd never get the gig in the end. And so then sort of dragging my heels, I went into law and worked in a variety of sort of public service positions in Brisbane, worked at the DPP. And then I moved to Sydney and worked in commercial law for a little while. And that really wasn't my bag. And then I went and worked for the Aboriginal Legal Service. That was probably my first Well, it was the first role I'd enjoyed. Well, I don't like saying... I found fulfilling and I met amazing people in that role. And that was... Yeah, well, it was. It was the first job as a solicitor that I enjoyed and I felt like I was um, part of something, which Mm. up until then I had struggled. I kept thinking, you know, law wasn't for me. And it wasn't until I worked at the ALS, which was... Yeah, opened my eyes in many, many ways. And there were just extraordinary lawyers Mm. there. Amazing Mm. people who were just, you kind of felt like you'd come home. You sort of met people that were as (laughs) crazy as you were, I think. I think that's what it was. And they were just very passionate about what they did and were very warm and welcoming so yeah that was the first time in, in you know that had taken me a good three years I think to get to that stage mm-hmm. and I was always trying to leave law the, the first day I was something I need to get out I was still trying to get a job in journalism and and um, I could I never seem to get the gig and it was the first job where I went oh well, maybe I can do this.
0: I feel like there's a lot of similarities between law and journalism because in both roles you're finding the stories that you need to mm. communicate mm-hmm. to other people to help them in some way.
1: It's all about communication and yeah. you have to you have to extract a story from them. And in law, it's a little bit more rigid in that you need to... The story then needs to be constructed or needs to be... The evidence needs to be arranged in a way that supports your argument. But, mm. look, you know, it's still very similar to journalism, except I think the thing that I used to always book with in journalism which I think came up in my interviews is I just don't think I would have ever been able to do the hardcore journalism of you know the death knock and going mm. around to and sort of pushing into people's lives and asking the tough questions I know I wouldn't have been able to do.
0: Questions but. like asking a mother whose baby's just died how do <laughs> yeah. you feel
1: Oh, oh yeah, well, I'm just asking really stupid <laughs> questions. Mind you, I've asked some stupid questions in my time as a <laughs> lawyer as well where you've gone, oh, my God, did I just say that? Yep, you did. Or you read back to transcripts of stuff and you're going, oh, my God.
0: I have a friend who used to be a family uh, family mm. lawyer, I in family law, and yep. he was filmed for a documentary on the ABC, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And it was filming one of him meeting mm. with one of his clients with the client's permission as well and mm. at one stage during this conversation the client just bursts into tears and so my friend mm. passes her a box of tissues and says here have a tissue okay. they're tax they're tax deductible
1: oh my god and of course, no. that
0: made it into the documentary and i'm not naming names because mm. it's still a very dear friend
1: I remember, I remember when is, I worked at
0: oh
1: God, I remember when I worked at the ALS <laughs> years ago, and that would have been the early noughties. The ABC were interested; they were wanting to do a series on the Office, and I think I remember liking the idea of it at the time. Um, but then balking, going, "Oh God!" Number one, most of our clients wouldn't have consented to it anyway. Yeah. But uh, but number two, even if they did, it was just being filmed doing your job and particularly in those early years you're so self-conscious as it is it's even worse having a camera stuck on you mm. so um yeah no thanks
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you're speaking of things that you, you can't work out why you said them that's a, a line that's haunted him ever since <laughs> mm.
1: well, look, the things that come out of your mouth though mm. when you're nervous and yeah. when you're in when you're in trials and you're under pressure and things come out of your mouth that you go oh my goodness where did that come from i think it improves with experience and god i wish we could all just be well, life would be boring i suppose if you were born with experience but it also solve a lot of problems yeah.
0: <laughs> what was your first trial as a barrister
1: one that I probably can't go into in great detail, but it was in regional Queensland. Was and it,
0: well, maybe just say, was it criminal or family? And was it a well, jury it or a
1: judge? It was, or? it was in front of a judge. It was actually a child protection matter. I can't go into the details no, of it. Don't. It was, it was quite, a, um, quite a long trial. And it was out went for a couple of weeks. And it was out at, um, on the Darling Downs. And I'd probably been at the bar then two or three months. So I'd had interim hearings and, and done a couple of sentences, but I hadn't had anything that had run to a full-blown trial. And the week before, my best friend from school died. Out of so on the Saturday, I found out he had died and I was starting on the Monday. And it was... Um, it It was actually doing the trial was probably saved my mental health at the time because I just had to focus on getting through it. And it kind of took my mind off what had happened to my mate. And it was actually quite a a difficult case. Then some difficult things arose in it. And certainly um, it wasn't an easy first trial and it wasn't an easy way to start it what happened but it, it kind of saved me probably that i think i would have been an absolute mess that first couple of weeks and i wasn't i was just a mess afterwards <laughs> so yeah brene
0: brown on her new podcast unlocking us on the first episode talks about the ffts which mm. stands for the fucked first times mm. and she says mm. how everything every time you do something for the first time it's really really hard so... it 's really
1: hard it 's like driving uh, near a cliff face in the middle of the night with no lights on and no it's matter like how no, no matter how much you prepare, some people are great at comprehension, observing things comprehension, watching it, and going right i 've got it and, and you know I know f- uh, colleagues of mine at the bar who went and watched a lot of trials, um, a lot of hearings, and in fact wouldn 't. I know one colleague who wouldn't refuse to do a trial, I think, for the first year until until she had watched enough advocacy. And certainly it helps to go and watch good advocacy. It helps to go and watch how trials work. But I've got to do it. Mm. That's the only way I learn it. It's the only way I then eventually manage my nerves enough Convince myself I can do it. Otherwise, it just never goes in oh. for me. And I suppose when I came to the bar, I, I you know, I'd been away from the criminal law and family law for a long time. I'd worked in the Federal Public Service in financial services and in corporate law. And really, probably I should have gone into commercial litigation as a barrister. But I wanted to, you know, I was going to the bar because I wanted to be an advocate, you know. And being a commercial barrister these days... You certainly observe a lot of trial time and there's a lot of trials where junior barristers, junior senior barristers. And so you watch a lot. And a lot of people learn the craft quite well by doing that, but I'm I'm not one of those people. I've got to actually do it. And so crime and family are still the most prominent areas for being on your feet all the time, which is, it's like being an actor. You've got to, you've got to practice your craft. And well, for me anyway... I think, I think it's really only been, I've been at the bar five years now and I don't think it ever completely leaves you and it shouldn't because it's to get yourself ready for a trial, you do have to be nervous. You do have to be stressed. There's a lot, there's a lot to account for and, and prepare for. And, you know, and I've run into QCs in the lifts <laughs> here at my, in my building who are like, you know, looking like they're about to throw up. And, and you go, I've said to them, I'm going, what you? like? You've been doing it for 50 years. And they go, oh, it never changes. Oh, no. and there's a part of me that goes, Oh God. But I feel there's probably been a, a shift a little bit this year for me, whereas I'm not as crippled by it. Whereas I felt probably in the first three or four years, I was just always, I found it crippling. I always felt like I was freezing In court, even though I wasn't, but internally I felt like that. And I think in those early years, it inhibited my performance, whereas now having done it, I've been doing it for about five years, five years actually this month, that i finally started to hit a new (coughs) level of, of confidence. I'm still very very anxious and nervous before a trial starts in fact it's the before part that's far worse than the trial itself mm. um it's like starting the car once you get started going it it goes but it's getting started that still freaks me out but it's not as overwhelming i'm saying that now and i'm going i've got a trial on monday and i'll probably be like for the rest <laughs> of the weekend going i oh, want a die <laughs> i do have that moment because when i'm in a trial i get up Really, really early, you should get up at two thirty or three in the morning because I like to be i'll keep preparing and I like to be warm i don 't like to sort of sleep till seven or six thirty or something like that because you're kind of you 're groggy and whereas if it, if I get up really early, I know i'm warm by the time the trial starts so there's always that moment where i 'm driving in from my place in Kenmore into the city where i 'm driving along Coro Drive and i 'm looking at the buildings and i 'm just squealing inside from anxiety and going, why have you picked this career? (laughs) Couldn't you have been a librarian? Couldn't you have been a social worker? Why have you picked this career? Why? This is because of your ego. This is why you're here and now you're in this hell. This is I always had this my I this is hell. I'm really in hell. This is what hell is. This is what it looks like. Take a look around. You're back and you're just there going, I want to die. I want to die.
0: As and someone who stands on stage and speaks in front of groups of hundreds of yeah. thousands of people i can completely relate to that yeah. i love giving keynotes and speaking mm. in the morning because there's fewer hours for me to feel like i'm going to vomit yeah. but in the afternoon or in the evening even worse you've got the oh whole even day to worry about it yeah so i love yeah. going on in the morning yeah after morning I... tea is my favorite time
1: yeah, yeah. and also look In the afternoons are hard because you get tired. It's generally in a trial. My solicitors always look at me going; they always want to go and get me a sandwich or something at lunch. And when I'm on trial, I just don't eat at lunch because I just I I don't want to be remote. I'll have a coffee maybe. I make sure I have a good breakfast in the morning, not a heavy breakfast, but usually a boiled egg or something like that. And then that'll last me the day easily anyway. And because I don't like being groggy in the afternoon. Mm
0: And plus the adrenaline keeps you going as well. Yeah,
1: oh, it does. It does. I have a love-hate relationship with it.
0: Could you imagine if you'd chosen your career path as an opera singer and had to go on stage, you know, eight performances a week or five performances a week and the anxiety that you'd feel?
1: You know, it's funny. Back in my time, it, like, we didn't call it anxiety. Mm. I was probably, we didn't know what it was. My parents used to just say, well used to say i was shy i was but i was i look back now and go well, i I had anxiety i was terrified but then i'd do it like you know i was always a performer you know i did a lot of speech and drama and music at high school and i was always in the debating team but i found it excruciating and and with performing in musicals and plays I loved it, but then I, I, lo- <laughs> I also loved it because I, I found it exhausting. And even when I left the con and I still did, I used to do shows and stuff. Not I didn't do it for that long because I, I, I did find it. I loved it once it got started, but it was prior to starting. And I know when I moved to Sydney, I did a couple of cabarets and, and I was working as a lawyer. And, like, I was only in my mid-20s then, so, you know,
0: a bit stronger
1: but I found it exhausting I went oh, I, can't. I can't
0: I was listening I to an interview with Kate Blanchett the other day she mm. was talking to Mark Manson and and he was asking her about nerves and she said she still gets crippling anxiety before mm. she steps on stage and oh, he said yeah. to her but you've been performing for 45 40 years and she said I know and she said I think that the anxiety means that you have a greater level of care and that well, you want to it, do yeah. a better job. And I certainly can relate to that.
1: Yeah. I have a debilitating fear of failure and, but also kind of lazy.
0: So there's always this,
1: <laughs> <laughs> this kind of like, it's like Cate it's stuck inside me, but I've also got layers or whatever his name was from life begin it, stuck in the same room. <laughs> and they're just going, looking at each other going, what? Um, but that debilitating fear of failure which is anxiety is wanting to get things right I think and this is when sort of younger lawyers come to me or or young people are just starting off in careers you know I never sought out mentors because I was terrified of them finding me out and I avoided that and I know that held me back in my career because seeking out mentors number one they do help you (laughs) number two they help you with networking and also they can relate to you what you do go through that we all have these same thoughts of self-doubt and it's it's particularly ferocious I think in the legal fraternity in the medical fraternity
0: I think it's common everywhere I think it doesn't matter what your profession is there's Yeah, so many people who have imposter syndrome and anxiety i think the
1: trouble with lawyers though is that it's built into our profession our Mm. job is to be we've got the internal imposter syndrome but we're paid imposters we're paid to cross-examine someone and go well you didn't do this did you you've done that wrong or you're lying you know this is our is is we're professional doubting Thomases. Um, so on top of all the natural imposter syndrome that we all have, particularly in the legal profession, then is this other layer because we're actually, particularly in litigation, that's what we're paid to do. We're warriors, you know. There's far more talk around that now. Whereas, you know, when I started off and more, it was particularly in Queensland, it was toughen up, sweetheart. I was away from Queensland for a long time. I was away for nearly 15 years. And it's funny because, you know, Sydney's got this reputation as being a big, bad, cold city. But I actually found Sydney and the legal fraternity down there far more inclusive and welcoming and understanding. Even though I wasn't great still at seeking out mentors, I felt far more part of it than I ever did up here at first that's different now since I've been back but Brisbane was a yeah it was a bit of a tough town back then mm. and it was still post Fitzgerald I think as well so that's the thing I always sort of say to young law students and young lawyers is to seek out those mentors because the fears that you have are the fears that everybody else has you're not on your own whereas up Back then, I always thought I was on, a, on my own with it, that, that there was something wrong with me.
0: Yeah, I totally so, agree. I think mentors are great for helping normalise that you think you're the only person mm, or doing or worried
1: about. Exactly, exactly. Law students coming through now and younger lawyers coming through now, they do have those supports in place and, the, and, and their law firms have mentor systems in place, which is really great. The flip side is that what I'm picking up and a lot of law students coming through is that they've all worked in isolation <laughs> So my law degree, the only reason I have a law degree is because my friends, they literally dragged me kicking and screaming all the way through, but we worked as a team. That's the way we got through. And if anything, now I look, looking back and and even looking now, they were my mentors, albeit slightly immature ones, but they are still my mentors now. They're the ones that I ring up and go, oh, my God, what do I do with this? Whereas law students coming through at the moment, they've all, and I don't know how they've done it because I couldn't do law, my law degree on my own. I needed that moral support. But a lot of them, I've had some that sit, sat in this office, done the entire thing remotely, have never met another law student in the program. Number one, I go, how sad. University mm. is all about camaraderie and learning together. But also, you've spent four or five years, this institution, you haven't come up with any kind of network. Mm. And I, I think that's something particularly with all this remote learning, I think universities have to focus more on helping these students or leading by example to make friends and to, and to yeah, network I know, agree. that support.
0: I, I met one of my best friends on our first day of uni. Yes. And we oh. met under a tree in the quad. And I remember um, and there was another girl I met as well who I stayed friends with for a long, long time until we just lost touch for no real reason, just, live in different places. And and I just think it must be so difficult to study online and to only do uni online because you don't get the depth of relationship that you get when you are in a classroom with someone.
1: Most of my degree, I was at the the old QUT Refect, but uh, I a large amount that. of
0: mine, I was at the ANU bar.
1: There you go.
0: Probably why I failed that degree yeah, and dropped yeah, out without yeah. ever finishing.
1: There you go. Yeah, but I still yeah. loved, I wasn't great at going to lectures, but I loved going to tutes because they were fun. If it was a particularly good tutor leading the session, it was interesting. You learned a lot and it was the exchange of ideas. And whereas, that doesn't seem to happen.
0: Yeah. And I and don't think it, you can
1: get that over a Zoom.
0: No, you can't. But if also, if it was bad, then you could bond over the eye-rolling that you'd all be exactly. doing, thinking, yeah. when is this going to end? And, yeah, exactly. you know, I did some excruciatingly boring subjects, especially in my first incomplete degree, mm. and I formed this beautiful circle of friends and it got to the point where we just took it in turns to go to the lectures. Yeah, you We yeah. went to one in five lectures and... Yeah. You were responsible for taking and distributing the notes to everybody I, else in our little cohort.
1: I miss the old note pool. I used to be like some sort of bloody stockbroker of notes because good notes <laughs> or good damn notes. In law school, where They're everyone off. wanted them, but you know, we'd often there were about a there's about five or six of us. When we still catch up all the time, and we'd split the notes up between us, Ooh. and we'd have to, you know, we'd run it like a business. I sold
0: some of my notes when I graduated. Yeah, I sold them yeah. at the end of each course to the next cohort. Exactly, and, you know, fifty bucks. Yeah, not a lot, just, but it was a lot of money then.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of money then. But yeah, it just doesn't seem to happen, mm. and I think that's. Sad because you're so supposed to be yeah. you are missing out on three quarters of what uni is, you know. Yep.
0: Totally agree. So Uh, I just want to digress. We've only got a few minutes left. Yeah. One of the things that I've loved watching with you during COVID and the lockdown (laughs) have been your hysterical TikTok videos that you very graciously also shared on Facebook. (laughs) And I was very sad when you told me earlier that you closed your TikTok account. Seriously, it was a highlight.
1: It's funny but it all came about when lockdown started. And I'd heard about TikTok through... Different cases are done. Children and often talk about it in family reports, and I, friends of mine who have kids had talked about it. But I, I didn't really know. I still don't even know what Snapchat is. I'm an old school social network. <laughs> social network. It's Facebook and Instagram. I don't even really do Twitter, to be quite honest. But yeah, anything outside of that, not really into. But TikTok. I don't know. It just exploded at the beginning of the lockdown, and. That sort of, <laughs> I just then went crazy for about a month.
0: All singing, all dancing, all wigwaring. <laughs> I singing, wearing. dancing it was awesome. and,
1: and then I did those characters and yeah. I hadn't done anything like that. Well, I, you know, I used to do acting quite a bit in my twenties, but I hadn't really done anything and filmed it. Although I, I did produce a web series a couple of years ago that I had a minor role in, but I did enjoy it and it was kind of a good distraction at the time because I suppose that first month was scary because we weren't, Mm. we didn't know what was going on well, the courts were still open, but they really hadn't tested their, their remote systems. And and I'm going, oh, my God, how long is this going to go on for? So it was a yeah. great, great distraction. <laughs> and I suppose, look, you know, I've always been the frustrated actor, writer, slash performer. How strange that I'm a barrister. <laughs> and, and, it, and it satisfied that. But it, yeah. it's funny, there's always this tension when you are a barrister or even a lawyer and particularly in this age of social networking and things so easily being online and how things can be misinterpreted so easily. I'm fine at first when I put something up, but then after a while I get quite neurotic and I go, oh, no, I have to take it. So I end up taking everything down. And so the way I did that, I suppose, you know, I kept kept them all up for about a month and then I went, oh, you know. And that's the tension I always have with having... I am a creative person and I've done different sort of film projects and stuff, mainly behind the camera, not in front of it, in the last few years. But I'm always worried about the Googlability of that and what Mm -hmm. that may look like. I have seen things go horribly wrong for people over the years through really no fault of their own, but carelessness, I suppose. So I've got the creative side, but I feel always constrained a bit by my career even you know I haven't done as much writing recently but I had a blog for years which I had up until the time I went to the bar and then I got worried not that there was anything really in it but there was nothing in it that would have been of concern but it was I was just worried that it may be misconstrued so I shut it down and I kind of really missed that I didn't realize how much I enjoyed blogging but you're always particularly in this kind of role you're always worried about how things may be interpreted flip side is doing a podcast like this you know i did the happy lawyer podcast with clarissa raywood god three years ago oh wow and i still i got an email last friday from this lawyer in america who wants to wants to interview me for his podcast and i went wow that's like three years
0: ago You never know who's listening. You never know. Podcasting and social media. Exactly.
1: And then, of course, you know, I've got the the panel stuff I do on the ABC, which I love. I love Mm. doing that. Same. That's so much fun. And that's how we met. And that's how we met. But, yeah, I'm always, yet again, it's the lawyer in me that's always going, how's that going to look? Is that going to look all right? Or if I said, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm very conscious. That's why my rule at the ABC is I don't talk about, anything legal because I'm just always terrified that I'm suddenly going to go down a wormhole and say something that I shouldn't have said. So, yeah, so there's always that friction, but that's life, isn't it?
0: It is. And thank you so much for your time today. That time again has gone really quickly. If people want to know more about you, obviously, and disappointingly they can't find you on TikTok.
1: They can't find me on TikTok. They can find me on LinkedIn. Which is? Simply, I'll pop a link on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'll, I'll send a link. It's simply John Carl on LinkedIn. Which look, I'm a bad LinkedIn person. I don't <laughs> check it all, I do have all these connections. I feel like a nana on LinkedIn. I don't know where it's come from, but it's. I think it's when I did the interview with Clarissa I got a, a lot of connections through that. But I'm terrible at checking it. But I, I get the notifications through my email, and messages come through to my email if people want to message me. I can, I can read it from my email. But um, excellent. Yes. Excellent. Well, thanks, Mel. Well,
0: thank you so much. You've certainly given me a few insights into being a barrister that I had not expected. Yeah, good. Yeah. So, thank you. Have time a for a wine. <laughs> time I've for got a barris- to go pick wine. up the car, and then yes. Ah, uh, yes.
1: Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my dear. Well, wonderful.
0: Pleasure. Thank, thank you. Excellent. See you soon. Talk soon. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Melkettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.